This is a podcast by Wellhouse Church, where certain things are fixed, the essentials of faith, and the best beer is served on tap, while everything else is just a matter of perspective. What's going on, beer lovers? What up? Let's drink some beer and talk some theology. Y'all know the drill at this point. Yep, let's just do it. No sense in prolonging the inevitable. Yeah, yeah. Because whether these microphones are here or not, we will drink beer and talk theology. <laughs> What's so funny, though, is that that's not untrue. <laughs> no, it's the most truthful statement I've ever made on this podcast. <laughs> I think you and I, every time, maybe it's because of this podcast, maybe it's because we've been doing it before the podcast. Like, I don't know. Every time one of us cracks a beer, we're talking theology at some point over the course of the beer. Probably. Probably. Or or some kind of life event or something. Yeah, something that does feed back into theology in some way. Yep. Right? Which is the whole idea of talking about God and ethic, right? Because your theology and your ethic don't match and that impacts. Or they do match. They, they do. Your words don't match what your ethic says right. you actually believe about God. Exactly. Which impacts your interaction in the world absolutely um and so in some way or another we end up having a conversation yep. related to theology yep um so let's just do it let's talk what, about these beers what you what you got there bro all right so i'm actually really excited about this and for anyone who's about to ask me this question after i tell you about this beer no i'm not canadian <laughs> but this is from saloon door brewing which i've actually never had um, I'd, I'd never even heard of them. H-E-B has a few different labels from them. So but they're like in it, Webster. Yeah. If if they have... So Webster is like... 40 minutes from us? Yeah. Um, something like that. Which in Texas is nothing. Yeah. Um, and so if you like that, we'll get more. Yeah. So it's called the Mariculis. Mariculis. And it's a maple and pecan Russian imperial stout. Mm -hmm. I love pecans. I was just having this conversation with someone the other day. Arguably my favorite nut. Yeah, that's always been true for you. Pecans or walnuts. Like, but, I just love them. And, and the um, brown sugar. The pecan, candied pecans. The candied pecans. Yeah, at Bucky's, man. Yeah, which I don't think is going to be too far with the, the maple. I don't think so. So, really interested in this. 11.8% um, <clears throat> ABV. So, drink responsibly. Drink responsibly. <clears throat> Our studio is at my house. I am home for the night. Not going anywhere. Like 11.8 <laughs> is stout. Yeah. Um, also, if you... So those of you not watching on YouTube, you can't see. It has oh, a pig yeah. with Christmas uh, tattoos yeah. Yeah. on it and wearing a Santa hat. So I wonder if this was a Christmas release. That um, they just kept around? Yeah. Uh, it, that's Maybe what makes so. me wonder. Because the can even looks Christmassy. It does. It does uh, look Christmassy for sure. And it's August when we're recording this. Yeah. So. It's literally, literally the middle of August. <laughs> Pretty far away from Christmas, but I'm sure it's going to be a good beer. Um, I have, um, a Bach from Martin house brewing company mm. out of Fort worth. It is called the box slider. 
<laughs> nice. Um, the Toadies Texas Buck. Um, and uh, I have no idea what to expect from this. I can't actually find the ABV on it. Oh, 5.6. Oh. So the box slider, music and beer made in Texas by Texans. I hope it's more of the shiner vein and or a classic Bach than this where it's more dry than this yeah. sweeter Bach that's been arising in the last few years. Me too. Um, I don't know what to expect from this, but I do still love trying new craft. Yeah, you know what I mean? Absolutely. Because what do I always say? You don't know what to taste unless you've tasted it. Yeah. Right. And so you can't give good tasting notes on anything until you've tried everything yes and so that means you try everything that you can food um whether it's food or drink you try everything to build your encyclopedia of tastes yep yep couldn't agree more so well cheers buddy cheers man Oh, it's thick, kind of like a milk stout. Mm, that's good. You like milk stouts. Ooh. Good. Really sweet for a stout. Um, I don't tend to like my stouts quite this um, sweet, but I knew going into it that it was going to be sweet with the maple and the pecan. Um, yeah, really good. I don't want to grade it yet. You know, that's something we should start doing. Is like rating them. Yeah. I always do it in my head, but I never say it out loud. So the the thing is about that is we have to do it based on category. Yes. We can't do it on an overall. Yeah, I'm um, fine with that. And so I actually like that idea, though. I think we should do that. Yep. That's happening. So what would you, you're not ready to? Not ready to. Let me have a few more drinks out of it. But it's so also while I'm talking about mine dive into it and you tell me well it's also 11 point <laughs> i want to be careful i don't want to slurp it all down right now so i don't know what to think about this is it really sweet mm, it's not really sweet it is slightly sweet mm. what's weird is it's dry up front and then develops into like a slight like malty sweetness. Mm. Um, still has like the classic Bach thing going on with it. Okay. Um, really reminds me of Shiner up front. Kind of got this like coffee note. Okay. Um, and like some baking spices, which mm. I you don't normally find in box. Yeah. Um, you can just rare. Yeah. Um, and, and so it, it's strange for me to be experiencing coffee and Bach like uh, things, coffee and baking spice with Bach like things. Yeah. And all of those coffee and baking spice things are happening on the back end. Yeah. And so like it's finishing well, but very different. It's a very different kind of thing. Yeah. I think I'm comfortably at an eight. Somewhere in the eights. I can't, I, 
I think I'm going to be somewhere around 8.1, 8.3 when it's all said and done. Um, really, really maple prevalent. Um, Is that good or bad for you? I would have thought it would have been good. I think it's turning me off a little bit. I too think sweet. it's just a little bit too much. Um, I don't really love sweet stouts. Yeah. Super sweet stouts. It's pretty sweet. Um, but that extra vanilla, that extra maple flavor there is really giving me some vanilla that I love with pecan. Yeah. No, agreed. Um, the, uh, the vanilla and pecan thing. I agree. Yep. Um, Especially like in pancakes. Oh my yeah. God. Yeah. Which is something like that is what I want it to taste like. Yep. Yep. Um, is like a breakfast. Well, it does. Okay. It's good. pulling that off. Good. It's pulling it off. I just That's don't. That's what I expected it to taste like. I just don't put that much maple syrup on my pancake. Yeah. No, I get it. For me, I'm sitting at probably a solid seven. Okay. Um, uh, I don't know because. It takes a minute yeah. to get to the um, the complexities. Up front, it kind of tastes like water, right? And, and it, that's not a bad thing. Like, some people like that. Some people want that. Yeah. But, yeah, like, I don't get anything until, like, after a second or two of, yeah. of tasting, which is where the coffee hits me, and then right behind it, I get the baking spices. Yeah. It takes a second for it to get there. And so, for me... Um, in in my palate, and I like really abrasive, bold kind of flavors. Yeah, it's a little boring. Yeah, um, and so I'm sitting probably at six point five. Okay, the other thing that this is not doing for me, I just realized, I want some kind of savory flavor, mm. kind of like buttery or smoky, yeah. kind of cooked flavor, roasted maybe like a roasted pecan thing. Yeah, not getting any of that. Yeah, it's just. Sugar in your face. One of my favorite styles of coffee is like Texas pecan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and it's because it brings, if you get the right one, yep. it brings like that roasted pecan flavor. Yep. Um, so I, I totally feel you. Yeah. So, yeah, I think I'm somewhere around 8.1. I actually, I need a redaction. <laughs> okay. And I was thinking about this a few weeks ago, and I was like, I should probably make a comment about this on the podcast, and I forgot. Okay. <laughs> Remember when we were having the conversations about, like, um, Guinness being better on tap? Yeah. And I said I liked it better out of the bottle. Yeah, you With did. the extra stout. Yeah. But the draught, I just don't generally like. When I was in New York... You had a draught. I was in... I went to... Three different Irish bars. And in all of them, I ordered a Guinness. The extra stout? They didn't have the extra stout. They had the draught. All they had was the draught on tap. And I will tell you, man, it was a spiritual experience. Oh, my gosh. Get out of here. <laughs> it was so good. It was creamy. It was fluffy. It's the pasteurized and, thing for me, man. Yeah. So I don't like it out of the bottle. But on tap, it's a different, it's a game changer, man. Hmm. Maybe I'll give it a shot on tap. It's a game changer. Um, and then, so at this one bar that I've, if I ever go back to New York, I'm going back to this bar. Okay. Um, it's on uh, the corner of uh, 25th and 2nd. Okay. 
Um, I, I wish I could remember the, the name of it. I could, I can get you there. Yeah. But I, I can't tell you the name of it. Um, I, I sat in there for like a couple hours just talking with the bartender, waiting for my buddy to get off work. And uh, I followed it up with a Powers, which is an Irish whiskey. Neat. And the way it transitioned from the Guinness, the draught, and that creaminess to the the fruitiness of the Powers mm. was an amazing drinking experience. Mm. Nice. Well, we'll have to go to New York together. Yeah, I, I'd take you to that bar. Let's do you it. would like that bar. All right. Let's do it. Let's talk about marriage and divorce and remarriage. I don't know why, like, I'm taking a big huff. <laughs> like, it's going to be a hard... We just came off God and violence. Yeah, like, <laughs> this is easy compared to that one. Well, sort of. Yeah. Here's the deal. So, I want to give a disclaimer. Before we get started down this conversation, because this is going to be... A, a, it, this is all a series on God and ethic... Yeah. Of which we're doing mini series of major categories that revolve around God and ethic. Yeah. And so this is going to be basically a mini series on four marriage. or five episodes, probably. Yeah, somewhere around there. Marriage, divorce, remarriage, the whole kind of thing. So throughout this mini series, you're going to hear me tell some stories. And if you've been around Wellhouse very long or you know me as a person, as a communicator, I actually pride myself on telling self-deprecating stories. I don't tell stories that make me look good um, because I just don't think that's the role of the pastor. I don't um, think that's a role of a good storyteller. Yeah. So I, I make myself the butt of most of my jokes. Um when I tell stories about me, I'm not going to do that. This one. Um, so most of you will not know, but I am currently getting a divorce. Um, my wife, my ex-wife, um, in January asked me for a separation. Um, I thought we were working on our marriage through the separation and she was having an affair. Um, and I found out in February, I found out on February 8th that she was having an affair and I spent the next six months trying to fix it, trying to restore the marriage, trying to make it work, even in light of her having an affair. And I was unsuccessful. It it didn't work. At some point, you had to realize yeah. that even if um, I do all this, if she still chooses not to come back, that's still her choice and you can't make her. Yeah. And so I finally just reached this place where I was like, you know, I don't, I don't think it's healthy for me to stay in this place any longer. This is no longer healthy for my person um, at this time. And so we sold our home. Um, I now live in my own apartment. Uh, she lives in her own apartment, and she's uh, in a relationship with 
the man that she had an affair with. Um, so that is where I sit today. The reason that you on YouTube see a new podcast studio, a new set, is because of all of this. I'm sure it fills in a lot of gaps is if you've listened to Praxing Presence and I've talked about recent traumas and, and things that I've been experiencing and dealing with. I'm sure it makes a lot of sense. I mean, you, I'm not wearing a wedding ring anymore. I, uh, the divorce has been filed. It's like under proceeding. I didn't file. She did. Um, just the whole thing. It, I think it fills in a lot of gaps for a lot of people. But with that, I have a lot of really pertinent stories from my very recent experience of this really traumatic event that I'm going to tell throughout this mini-series. And I want the disclaimer to be, hey, I don't mean to tell stories that make me look like the hero in the story. Because uh, I've read Richard's book. I know his positions on divorce and remarriage and uh, those kinds of things. And so I don't want them to look that way, even though they are going to look that way. So that's my disclaimer on it. Now let's actually talk a little bit about, we're not going to get into Richard's book today, but let's just talk a little bit about divorce and culture. Okay. So here's what you got to understand. There's a story in the Gospels where they come to Jesus and they ask him about divorce. And he tells them, well, I know Moses told you this. Yeah, but I tell you. But I tell you this. Yeah. Now, what they're actually asking is a question about culture and interpretation of the Bible. Yeah. Because in the ancient world... The only caveat in the, in the First Testament, the caveat to divorce wasn't that you couldn't get a divorce. The caveat was if you got a divorce, you must give the woman a certificate of divorce so she's free to remarry or return home. Yeah. Here's the problem. By the time Jesus shows up, people are divorcing women for very superficial things yeah people are literally divorcing women for the jewish equivalent of burning toast mm -hmm. like literally if you were a woman and you did anything wrong it was virtually acceptable for you to divorce her for you to just divorce her and go pay a dowry to get a new wife yeah you could literally ruin lives because they burn the toast yeah jesus has no interest in that yeah Unfortunately, that's the society we live in in America. So that's what I was thinking. Um, is that divorce in and of itself is so normalized these days because yep. it's so common. Um, yeah. What is it, 80%? No, 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 no. So here's the statistic, and this is the scary part. 50% of first-time marriages end in divorce. Okay. Roughly, give or take. 75% of second marriages end in divorce. End in divorce. And 80% of third, third marriages end, end in, in divorce. divorce. That's what it is. And I kept thinking about, as we were setting up this conversation about divorce, 
I kept thinking about Ross. Yeah. And friends. Three divorces. Three, three divorces. divorces. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and so like I kept thinking about that and how friends for I was gonna say for American culture, but like honestly globally, yeah, is probably one of the most watched TV shows of all time. Yeah. Um Yeah, yeah, yeah. Probably. And and Ross's divorces were just made fun of the whole time. The entire time. The entire show from season one to the last episode of season 10. Because it starts with Ross getting a divorce in the pilot. Right? Yeah. 10 years well, worth of pop culture made jokes out of divorces. Well, and let's also not forget that the first time you're introduced to Ross... Not only is he getting a divorce at that time in culture, he's getting a divorce in the most worst way possible. His wife is literally leaving him so that she can have a wife. So in the nineties, very different world, very different world. You could say things like that. Yeah. And, and it would be culturally acceptable, not ethical. No, not at all. It was culturally acceptable. Yes. So, (laughs) We have just made divorce something that is just acceptable in our culture to the point that we're at the equivalent that if you burn the toast, yeah, you just get divorced. And here's the difference. In America, either one of you can go get it. Yeah. There were some sections of the world that allowed women to initiate divorce proceedings in, in the ancient in the, world. Well, not in the ancient world. Oh. By the time of the New Testament. Okay. Like, a lot of Roman colonies allowed for women to initiate divorce proceedings in the New Testament times. In the ancient world, yeah, no way did that. Mm. Women were property. Women were absolutely property. All and, over, the, and, all in over the, the known world. In the First Testament, women were property. Maybe, well, yeah, see, that's even after the... After the New Testament. So, yeah, all over the ancient world in the first Testament time periods, yeah, women are property. Women are not initiating divorce proceedings. Mm. <clears throat> They're also paying dowries for them, which right. doesn't really help the metaphor of them not being property. Yeah, they're paying their fathers. For, for them, them. Yeah. yeah. So, Which creates a whole nother line of conversation. It does. So the culture of the world that Jesus is trying to combat is very similar to the one that we have. And I think Jesus says, no, don't divorce. Yeah. Now, what's the one caveat he gets? Infidelity. Infidelity. That's the one. And I didn't really know where I would bring this in, in this series. Fit naturally. It fit naturally here. I've always wondered why can Jesus say that? And not not in a well, because he's Jesus, he can say whatever kind of way, but but genuinely, why would Jesus say that? And then I got cheated on. Mm. And I began searching for answers to this pain. Cause if you've been faithful. You don't know the pain, or sorry, if you haven't been faithful, 
you don't know the pain of that betrayal when you find out that you've been cheated on. Uh, and and that by the way that your spouse is leaving you for that person, um, and in America you have no control. Yeah, I did find out that in the state of Louisiana you can when you get married you can agree to this thing called a covenant marriage in Louisiana, which means that you have to live separated for two years before you can even initiate divorce proceedings. Wow. That's the most stringent I've ever heard of. Yeah. And that still doesn't lock anybody down. If no. somebody wants to leave, they're going to leave. Like, you you just don't have a choice. You can't hold them hostage. But. As you shouldn't, though. Right. Agreed. But as you, as you enter down this road of experiencing this betrayal in this way, you start looking for answers. Yeah. How can Jesus say, why does Jesus say this? Why is this the caveat? Now, in the moment, you know the pain and you understand why it's the caveat. But why does God understand it? Mm. Because when Israel chooses other gods over him, they're cheating on him. He calls them an adulterous generation. He uses the metaphor of sexual infidelity to describe his relationship with his people. Yeah. And so Jesus sets it up right away. He's like, hey, I don't think divorce is good. I don't want you guys divorcing each other, except on the grounds of infidelity, because I know that pain. Yeah. I know what that feels like, and I know that that's very difficult for most people to overcome. I think there needs to be a further explanation here. Okay. Do you mind? And I'm going to tell this story because it's not... You telling the story as your own hero. Okay, fair. Um, just so you know, we don't script these. No, so we don't. Clayton's just doing this on a whim. Yeah. Um, God took Israel back time and time again mm-hmm. after he would call them an adulterous nation. Yeah. Had grace and fully restored them 100%. Every time. Every time. And that was the approach that Cohen took. Um, as much as his ex-wife would allow him to. Mm-hmm. Um, he fought for restoration. He fought for grace. He fought for love because that's what God did. Yeah. Fundamentally, as we talked about in our, our soteriology lesson, like in our soteriology series, we believe in this thing called participationist theology. Which, which means that we believe that we are saved through the process of participating in God-likeness. Um, and for Cullen, that meant putting himself through the pain of fighting through it because that's what God did. Yeah, for me, it was, it was several fold. One, I couldn't shake, I couldn't shake Paul in Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, giving yourself for her. I couldn't shake that. There's something about the sacrifice, Mm. the sacrificial element of what we're called to as husbands. Um, Now, I'll also tell you, 
because I know the pain that it takes for that sacrifice, I'm not sure I'll ever do it again. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure I won't because it also allows me to have the confidence to know that I actually know what true love is. Like I have a, like a categorical (laughs) definition of love. Yeah. That when it happens is reproducible. Yeah. The question is, do I want to do it again? Um, the other thing was to the participationist aspect, I just couldn't shake this, this idea that me choosing a divorce was me choosing to actively participate in something that God hates because God gives an out for infidelity, but he doesn't command it. Notice the difference. So, yeah, I think it's it's easy to sit where someone sits and say, oh, if so-and-so ever cheated on me, I'd be out the door. I also realized in that moment, back to the Ephesians 5 thing, if I leave, if I on my own accord leave, how is that in the best interest of my then wife or my two toddlers? Yeah. How, How is that in the interest of anyone other than Cullen? How is that looking like Christ? And this is what I mean when I say that your theology and your ethics should line up. Because did I want to sit there night after night as I know that my wife is with another man? Did I want to sit there waiting on God to do something? No. No. You and I had many, many conversations about that. No, I didn't want to be there. Yeah. My theology would not allow my ethic to do anything else. Which is a perfect example of theology and ethic in general. Um, Because in your day-to-day life, and not only just your day-to-day life, in one of the most traumatic times in your life. Yeah, one of them. You made sure that your theology and your ethic lined up together, and and that's one thing that I always commend people on is making sure that people. The way I like to word it is they stick to their own narrative. Yeah. Um, if you say you believe something, you better act like you believe it. Well, and I would constantly ask myself, <clears throat> Cullen, if if a congregant came to you with the story, <coughs> with your story, asking you for advice, what would you tell them? Mm. And then I would go do what I would, what I think I would have told my congregant to do. Listener, don't, don't miss that. He's coming from this from the perspective of a pastor or as a pastor. But fundamentally... That is him as a Christian. Yeah. 
we all need to ask ourselves that question in every area of our life, which directly fits into God and ethic. Yeah. Right. If somebody comes to me in this exact spot, what would, if somebody asked me what they should do, what would I tell them? That is how I need to act. Yeah. Well, in every area of your life. Well, for me, it was so important because, <clears throat> look, right, wrong, indifferent, love it, hate it, accept it. Pastors live in a glass house. Yeah. My entire or life should. is on display. Yeah. Um, everything about my life is on display and on blast. And I'm okay living in, quote unquote, that spotlight because I'm confident in my ethic. I'm confident in the fact that my theology and my ethic line up. And I think you could speak to anyone. And just in my theology and ethic of women alone, that's true. Like when I decide something theologically... I really feel like I live my life according to it. Um, <clears throat> now, that passion within me has also led me to do some really stupid things because I had some really bad theology at times in my life. Yeah. Um, I've been there. <laughs> yeah. It just happens. You do some really stupid and unhealthy things in the name of a faith that, or a construct of faith that you thought was healthy and you later found out was terrible. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> no matter if that means you're liberal going conservative or conservative going liberal. Yeah. Either way it works. If, if you're leaving a faith, it's because that faith didn't work, yeah. which also means you experience pain and trauma because of that faith. Yeah. Um, or because of things you experienced within that faith. And so like, I just, I, when I went through deconstruction, part of my dilemma so I had two big dilemmas. One was the fact that I saw too much death in the world. And I had to, I had to resolve this question within me that how can God be wholly powerful and wholly good with this much death in the world? I had to resolve that theological dilemma for myself. But then the other thing I had to deal with was, I just remember so many of the Christians that I grew up with Theology and ethics seem to be disconnected. Yeah. And it's actually not because, I'm, I'm just convinced, it's not because theology and ethic are actually disconnected. It's because they had very low theology. Or, so, yes, and, um, in the American church, ah, uh, you can I, say it. You can blame it on moralistic therapeutic deism. That, uh, yes. Okay. You can do it. <clears throat> That's what I want to do. Because we, we do this thing where it's just... We believe that God is this own thing. And we are this separate thing. Mm -hmm. And we don't have to look like God because mm -hmm. he is God and we are not that and we mm -hmm. know that so it's okay if we're faulty. Yeah. And that's just not okay. And and 
this is really what popped in my mind. I, I saw this post on Instagram today. <clears throat> I'm not going to shout out the page. I'm not even going to use the words that they used. Um, but essentially, they were making a comment about uh, evangelicals mm-hmm. who pursue the All Lives Matter movement. Mm-hmm. Um. But then they also said that these same evangelicals are the people that are saying they don't want Afghan <laughs> refugees in our country. Yeah. Um, theology and ethic don't lie. Yep. Correct. <clears throat> That's a huge problem for me. That was a huge problem for me in my deconstruction. You people of faith don't act like faith. Yes. You people of faith talk a whole lot about getting rid of sin from your life, but I don't hear very much talk about justice. I don't hear very much talk about caring for the poor. I don't care very much. I don't hear very much talk about the quartet of the vulnerable. Mm. I don't hear many pleas for adoption from this pulpit. Yeah. I don't hear any of that. All things that there's far much more time spent in scripture on those things than there are asking you to get sin out of your life. But what's so funny is that when it comes to marriage and family, evangelicals are gung-ho. Don't get a divorce. Yep. Don't do it. Yep. Even if, so much so, that I heard this story. Professor of mine at Truett tells this story. I sorry, I'm sorry. Let me, let me clarify something. I said evangelicals. Christians. Yes. Because it is larger than an evangelical issue. Seminary professor Ed Truett tells this story, having a conversation about marriage and divorce, taking a gospels class actually, having this conversation about Jesus' teaching on marriage and divorce. He tells me, God designed marriage for four things. One man, one woman, one flesh forever. Okay? That's the Genesis narrative. Genesis yeah, no, I guess. One and two. One That's and the two. narrative. Yeah. Tells me this story. Rich man gets married. Married for a lot of years. Wife doesn't want to live with him anymore. So he buys her a house. Lets her live in the house. Gives her a lot of money to live her life. And he goes and lives his life. They're not with anybody else. They're not together. But they didn't get a divorce because he's a deacon of the church. (laughs) Is that a marriage? No. (laughs) No, it's not. But because he didn't get the physical piece of paper that said he had a final decree of divorce, he was still kosher. Which makes me wonder and makes me ask the question, how much hold do we give that piece of paper? You know, it it is literally a piece of paper. It is nothing more. It can be ripped. Mm -hmm. It can be torn. It can be burned. Mm -hmm. It is nothing more than a statement from legal powers Mm -hmm. saying that you are legally married for tax purposes. Uh, For the legal powers perspective, yes. Yeah. Um, well, and here's the deal. We need to wrap this up pretty quick, but here's the deal. And this is just where I'm at. 
I don't I don't care where anyone falls on the issue of same sex marriage. I don't, I genuinely I don't care. Your position is your own. I don't care where you fall on that issue. The church lost ground on having a claim on marriage when we let the government come into it. Yeah. We messed it up. Um, and so I don't care where you fall out on that. When the government begins to dictate what's an appropriate marriage, I don't think the government should have any say on what's a Christian marriage. Now, I'm also not saying, like, I, I naturally hear how our reader, like our listeners are listening to this going, oh, this guy's not affirming. No, don't make up what I am in that conversation. That's for a different podcast. That doesn't make a Christian marriage. Yeah. In the state of Texas, infidelity alone doesn't merit you a divorce. Yep. But for Jesus, it does. The government and the church are not the same thing. I wrestle back and forth with when my marriage ended. And notice I said ended. Yeah. I don't think the piece of paper ends my marriage. I think the infidelity ended it. And it was intact as long as I wanted it to be. And as long as I was still trying to fight. As long as you could take it. Yeah. Is really what it comes down to. But my marriage ended at the at the sexual affair. Yeah. That piece of paper doesn't matter. That piece of paper doesn't matter in my eyes. The blessing from the pulpit matters, but that went away with the affair. The vows of till death do us part. Went away at the affair. Because it's no longer till death do us part. No. Because death didn't do us part. Yeah. Another man did. Yeah. So I think all of it for a conversation, and this is why I say this is going to be a very long mini-series, and this was a big introduction to many more conversations. I promise we're going to get to Richard Hayes. But I need you to know that when I sit here and I say these things to you, I'm not just blowing smoke. I really consider, do I live the things that I tell you to live? Um, and over the next few weeks, you're going to hear some real terrible stories of my brokenness, of me trying to deal with the most intense pain in my life while also trying to balance what it is to be a pastor and to be a public figure and to deal with emotions and put the face on for gatherings and try to cope and do it in some healthy and some really unhealthy ways because I was in survival mode. Um, so listener, when I tell you there's grace for you, I believe that because I need it. I need the same grace that I tell you you have available. When I tell you to live by an ethic, 
I really try to live by that ethic. It's, it's not something that I take lightly. And that's why I don't want you to take it lightly. Your theology and your ethic matter because your ethic reveals your theology.